Hello and welcome to Grassroots, the environmental news show. Patty and Doug Wood and our worldwide team of experts with your weekly update on things that can impact your life. Welcome back. This week, it's all about plastic pollution. You may think of plastic pollution as the accumulation of the world's plastic trash in our oceans or washing up on the shores of some distant island. There's no doubt the contamination of the world with plastic trash is an environmental travesty for which we all share some of the blame. But now we're talking about the pollution of our bodies with the toxic chemicals that are used to make the plastic we use every day. From our Starbucks iced coffee container to our shampoo bottle to our little package of ketchup in our takeout meal, plastic is all around us. And perhaps no single item made from plastic is quite as ubiquitous as the plastic bottle. Mike Beliveau is an MIT-trained scientist and executive director of Defend Our Health, a nonprofit organization working to reduce toxic chemicals with a special concentration on environmental justice. Patty and I recently spoke with Mike and asked him first to talk a little about the organization. Defender Health is a nonprofit public health and social justice organization. And we fight every day for people's rights to have healthy homes, toxic free and climate friendly products, safe drinking water, safe food, etc. It's a matter of environmental health and justice. I got started on these issues actually inspired by Lois Gibbs at Love Canal in Niagara Falls, who organized with other moms whose kids were getting sick from dumping by hooker chemical back in the late 70s. And uh, her story, of course, was on the front pages of the New York Times and the news every day. And uh, I was in college at the time. And I said, geez, I want to help people like Lois uh, fight back and hold the chemical industry polluters accountable. And um, sure enough, within a couple of years, I was working with Lois and uh, she was my inspiration to uh, pursue a career of environmental health, environmental justice, holding polluters accountable and advocating for solutions. What are you by training? Are you a, a scientist, an activist? Uh, I did get an environmental science degree at MIT and, um, and I've applied it to policy and political change and organizing and advocacy in uh, the nonprofit sector my my entire career. Cool. So the chemical footprint of a plastic bottle, that I think you did a, little, a presentation on that for Che and Patty was on that call. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, we all know we have a plastics crisis. Most people think about it as a waste issue. Plastics litter the oceans and the lands and, um, and too little of it is recyclable or recycled. Uh, certainly, it's a terrible waste problem, but we think that we need to reframe the plastics issue as a matter of environmental health and climate justice, because it's the production and use of plastic that has bigger impacts upstream before it ever becomes waste than the waste waste mismanagement itself. So we wanted to take a look at a very common plastic item that everyone could relate to, the plastic bottle, you know, used for bottled water or soda or juices, you know, some 85% of beverages are packaged in plastic. And we wanted to see what was hidden behind the bottle because when people, you know, briefly think about whether they should toss or recycle the bottle when they when they down their beverage, they treat it as a benign entity. It's clear, doesn't smell bad, doesn't taste bad. But we knew that there was a, a deeper toxic unjust story to be told. 
So we did a deep dive into what does it take to make a plastic bottle? And what we found was shocking. Should I should I rattle off a few findings? Rattle it yeah. off. Yeah, please, rattle away. <laughs> so kind of working backward from the consumer perspective, people don't realize that chemicals migrate out of a plastic bottle into the beverage that you're consuming. Uh, the science that's been published shows that 150 different chemicals have been shown to escape from the plastic into a plastic bottle beverage. We drilled down on one of those that we know the most about, and that's a metal called antimony. And antimony is a probable human carcinogen. We know it causes cancer in workers that are exposed to it, and it has all the um, trappings of, of uh, causing cancer in the way that uh, biologists determine that. And this substance is added it's kind of the final spice when they make the plastic resin. It's a catalyst. It's used to speed up the final reaction to make the plastic. Well, some of this metal or metalloid material, antimony, is carried forward into the plastic. You can measure it in the plastic itself. And some of it migrates out of the plastic into the beverage. We tested 20 plastic bottled beverages purchased at retail, soda, juices, waters from major brands. And 40% of those samples, uh, the testing showed that um, the California public health goal for antimony in drinking water was exceeded 40% of the time. And this is to protect against liver toxicity. We think it's even more potent as a cancer-causing substance. And we think that the California action level should be even lower. So that's one thing consumers don't realize is that every time you sip on a plastic bottle beverages, beverage, you're, you're microdosing with toxic chemicals that can affect your health or your family's health. So I have a question. I mean, you're talking yeah. about California and their acceptable levels of this, this metal. They have Prop 65. Can you talk a little bit about that? And have they even thought about adding plastic bottles to, I mean, since we're talking about carcinogens, hmm. um, cancer-causing chemicals, is California going to make that huge leap? and have it on every single bottle in California? The state of California has determined that this bottle- oh, well, All right, Patty, let me ask you the question. Oh my God. You're thinking just like we do, Patty. Uh, okay, go, tell me about this. Well, when I worked in California, I worked on the campaign that passed Proposition 65. And Prop 65 says that you can't expose a resident to a chemical known to cause cancer or reproductive harm unless you first warn them of exposure. And you know some of the Prop 65 warning labels are not that effective, but it's a, in fact, the law is a very powerful tool because no uh, name brand company wants to tell you that their product <laughs> contains a cancer-causing substance. Yeah. So um, there's a controversy currently over um, antimony and Prop 65 where arguing that it needs to be fully listed and the state is hemming and hawing a little bit. Uh, so it may become actionable. Uh, we certainly think that the, well, we know that there are safer alternatives. There are two cancer-causing substances that could, antimony and cobalt, another metal, that the plastics industry could eliminate almost overnight uh, and still make the same plastic bottle. So we're uh, campaigning or meeting with the beverage companies and campaigning publicly to say that they need to require their suppliers 
to end the use of these two cancer-causing substances when they make the plastic, so mm -hmm. as to protect their customers, their consumers. And that's only the beginning of the problem with right. PET plastic bottles. You said it was in 40% of the bottles. So in 60% of the bottles, were they able to make the bottle without the antimony? Is that what you think? Or no, we, found it, we found antimony in every beverage we tested. I'm just saying that uh, the levels, the concentration, okay. the metal exceeded the California public health goal. In 40% of the cases. Of the time. But we looked at a more protective health level that we thought was justified, and 80% of the samples exceeded that. Mm. But it was present in every sample we tested. Okay, good. This is also a matter of uh, environmental justice. You know, on a population-wide basis, uh, the federal government uh, runs what's called a national biomonitoring program. Every couple of years, they go around and select 5,000 Americans randomly to get a even representation. And they, uh, they not only ask them what they eat and what they did in the previous 24 hours, but they test their blood and urine for a variety of chemicals. And th thus, they establish what the population exposure is to a whole variety of chemicals of concern. And when you look at the federal government's antimony data, you see that uh, Latinx and African-American consumers are disproportionately exposed at a higher level than white consumers. This is just on average across the American population. Further, young children uh, and older children are exposed to much higher levels than adults. So this is a matter of environmental injustice where certain groups of people are disproportionately impacted, and they happen to be groups that have the least power or face the most discrimination or oppression in our society. And that's just not right. That's that's unjust. Do you know why that is? Have you studied why these underserved populations uh, have higher levels? Because my thinking is that it may be that they don't have access to, you know, reverse osmosis, you know, systems in their home where they can fill their own, you know, glass or stainless steel water bottles. Um, and they're just buying cheap, you know, uh, drinks and bottled water. Yeah, we don't know for certain. We're we're asking um, the EPA to investigate and eliminate racial disparities and population-wide chemical exposures like this. It could it could likely be related to poor access to um, unprocessed and unpackaged foods, and it could be related to um, another use of antimony is is as a uh, an agent that enhances the effect of flame retardant chemicals. And so it, it shows up in household dust. So you have older homes, perhaps, and older couches and older stuff with more flame retardants in it that's releasing this chemical into the dust. And you have toddlers rolling around, uh, putting their hands in their mouths, ingesting you know this dust with these chemicals. But the environmental injustice is even worse further upstream. <laughs> and by upstream, I mean, where does where does the plastic come from? So there's about 10 um, producers of this type of plastic, which is called PET. It has the number one resin identification code. That's the most common plastic used in plastic bottles. Uh, it's made at about 10 locations in the U.S., mostly in the Carolinas, in the Southeast. And uh, the Production of this PET plastic resin for both plastic bottles, but also for polyester clothing, because polyester is simply PET plastic in fiber form, produces a that, uh, I, didn't, that I didn't know. Yes, it produces a toxic byproduct called 1,4-dioxane. Mm -hmm. This is a probable human carcinogen. 
as you know, is very persistent in water. It does not break down naturally in water. And when we looked at, there's some 20,000 industrial facilities in the United States that must report releases of toxic chemicals to the US EPA every year. And we looked at what was reported for 1,4-Doxane. And amongst 20,000 industrial facilities, these 10 PET production plants were in the top 20 for releases of 1,4-Doxane to both the air and also to the water. And we know that this chemical has been detected in the drinking water downstream, in the Cape Fear watershed in North Carolina, in the Ohio River uh, as well, downstream of these PET production plants. And just this month, the US EPA released a draft risk assessment that concludes that 1,4-Doxane from PET resin, plastic resin production, poses an unreasonable risk to human health for both plant workers, but also people that live downstream and who breathe the air downstream or drink the water. So this is a very serious uh, underreported toxic hazard that is uniquely associated with PET plastic. And PET plastic production is driven by two things, plastic bottles and polyester clothing. Those are the two major uses. So, and if you look at the plants and their locations in Decatur, Alabama, and uh, different communities in um, North and South Carolina, they are disproportionately burdening lower income communities and predominantly African-American and Latinx communities. So we have another case of an environmental injustice at the point of plastic production, but then it gets even worse further upstream because you think about the plastic plants need chemicals that they mix together to make the plastic. Where do those chemicals come from? We mapped the chemical supply chain of PET plastic and traced it back to the, not surprisingly, to the Gulf Coast of the United States, predominantly Texas, Louisiana, where the chemical industry is concentrated. And they make a chemical called ethylene oxide or ETO. Some people have heard about it because it's used as an industrial sterilizing agent. But even more of it is used, manufactured for use to make PET plastic resin. And ethylene oxide is a very potent known human carcinogen. Uh, Exposure to it is associated with leukemia, lymphomas, and breast cancer. And when EPA did their risk assessment, they've concluded that that one chemical, ethylene oxide, drives cancer risk among all industrial air pollutants in the United States. It's the dominant source of cancer risk. And more than half of that chemical is used to supply PET plastic production. And again, that's driven by the insatiable addiction of the beverage companies to plastic bottles and the fashion brands to fast fashion polyester fiber. And so uh, we mapped this chemical supply chain to hold those downstream companies accountable. The ethylene oxide, when again, EPA recently did a risk assessment, they concluded that even after proposed regulations that EPA has put on the table but not yet adopted, more than 3 million people would still face significant cancer risk from ethylene oxide emissions associated with PET plastic production. 64% of that population are brown and black people who live within 30 miles of these plants. So again, classic case of environmental racism. 
everyone knows or who's paying attention knows that um, you know living by a chemical production plant is hazardous to your health or working in one or near one in that they have disproportionate impacts on communities of color and low-income people. However, the, well, we need to connect the dots. What's driving that? It's not simply the chemical industry, uh, which is the source of the air emissions. It's to make plastics. And the companies that are consuming those plastics are responsible for cancer in the Gulf Coast, for cancer by the point of production, and for hazards to consumers. So we profiled the hidden hazards of a plastic bottle so as to hold Coca-Cola and the other beverage companies and ultimately the fashion brands accountable for reducing the harm and eliminating the unjust racial disparities because it's their use of plastic that's causing these problems. And that's the story that has not been told enough. You're listening to Grassroots, the environmental health show with Patty and Doug Wood. And our guest today is Mike Beliveau, executive director of Defend Our Health. So the companies that are polluting the air and the water as they make plastic are fully aware of the harm they're inflicting on the people who live in the fence line communities around these plants. I wanted to know if the companies had any public response, any acknowledgement of their role in causing these serious health problems. Here again, Mike Beliveau. We've met with Coca-Cola, we met with PepsiCo, we've met with Curry Dr. Pepper, we met with Campbell's. Campbell's sells the, the V8 vegetable juice and plastic and fruit juices in plastic bottles. Uh, they are in denial. You know, they've been called on the carpet for plastic waste. You know, uh, the Break Free from Plastic Network has found that Coca-Cola is the number one plastic polluter in the world right. in that five years running, in that their name is on more pieces of plastic litter collected in 40 countries around the world than any other company. So they're feeling the pressure on the waste side, and they have a short-term strategy, which is a, a failed strategy to try to improve the infrastructure for recycling and recycle more. Those are not bad activities, but we can't recycle our way out of the plastic crisis. The amount of plastics produced is growing exponentially. It's doubling every 10 years still. And pathetically, only 30% of plastic bottles in the United States are currently collected for recycling. And only a third of those end up being recycled. A third of what's collected is wasted in the process. And the rest is, is downcycled into single-use, low-grade fiber. Even if we doubled recycling, which is certainly technically feasible, that gain would be outpaced by this exponential growth yeah. in plastic production. Yeah, absolutely. And and sure. the recycling process itself creates microplastics and nanoplastics. And then you have this whole idea of burning plastic as fuel and yes. chemical, you know, recycling, breakdown yeah. of plastic. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I'm on the board of Beyond Plastics. And so, you know, we're at the point where we're telling people don't recycle plastic. Right. Actually put it in the garbage because it is actually safer in a landfill than it is being incinerated or, you know, going through one of these processes that are, you know, contaminating the entire planet. I mean, we all have nanoplastics in our blood and our lung tissue. And yeah, the answer, you're right, Patty. The answer is that we need to reduce the production and use of plastics. Eliminate it. We need to bend the curve down so that we're steadily reducing the amount that is produced. 
But here's the little known uh, fact about recycling that we uncovered in our investigation. When you recycle a plastic bottle and it goes through what's called mechanical recycling, which is the conventional recycling where they chip it up, wash it, and reheat it and melt it, it turns out that toxic byproducts are created, including benzene, a known human carcinogen, and styrene, a probable human carcinogen, by the mechanical recycling process. So researchers that have published in the peer-reviewed scientific literature have shown that they measure the virgin PET plastic. It contains no benzene and no styrene. They measured bottles that contain recycled PET. They find both benzene and styrene. And the higher the recycled content, the higher the levels of cancer-causing chemicals. Yeah. And what's probably happening is contaminants, other plastics are getting entrained with the collection and recycling because they found that in the states that have bottle bills, you know, paid deposits that are redeemed, you get a cleaner stream of just bottles. But in most modern cities, it's single sort, just dump everything in one container, we'll sort it out later. Well, that single sort process contaminates the bottles that are collected with other and, and PET packaging with other plastics like polystyrene and like polyvinyl chloride PVC. And so you're probably getting um, the chlorine in the PVC is liberating benzene from the PET plastic and you, and the polystyrene is breaking down into styrene. So, you know, recycling is a dirty process. How about polycarbonate with BPA as one of the main Yes, that is a big that's another there are yeah, there are many issues with other plastics as well. Even with paper. I mean, we tell people, you know, when we're speaking, um, that you know, that buying recycled paper products, you know, especially if they're gonna be used for personal use, is probably not a good idea because there's so much there is biologically active amounts of BPA in recycled paper products. Like you know, toilet paper and paper towels and all those things. Good. So one for dioxane, you know, we, Long Island has no, we really don't have the chemical industries that you're talking about, the plastics industries or the chemical manufacturers that they have on the, you know, on the, on the Gulf coast and so on. But we are ground zero for one for dioxane contamination in our water. And, you know, I think that this is from, and once again, it's a chemical that was not intentionally added but I think it is from these huge plastic jugs of laundry detergent. I mean, we have millions of people living on Long Island, you know, dumping, you know, gallons and gallons and gallons, and they're using the cheapest detergent possible. And they have to put it through this ethoxylation process yes. to make the, the cheap detergent less harsh, right, for your skin and your hair. And so that process creates one for dioxanes, not intentionally added, but Patty, there Patty, it is. Patty, is I want to ban it. Is there a question here? Yeah, the question is, I want to ban liquid laundry detergent to solve the uh, the plastics problem as well. We have to do something. I'm just, you okay. know. Let, let Mike answer, please. I know yeah, you keep thinking as a radio producer. Oh, I'm man. having a conversation <laughs> with Mike, so shush. Uh, 1,4-dioxane is a terrible uh, pollutant. And just because it's created as a byproduct doesn't mean that there aren't parties responsible for its creation. And so we do need to look at, there are certain chemistries that are inherently hazardous. 
you mentioned um, you know ethoxylated substances like certain surfactants. That is a source of 1,4-dioxane. So is the process used to make PET plastic. Anything that contains ethylene glycol, you're going to get 1,4-dioxane as a byproduct. It has showed up as a contaminant in um, cosmetics. All of these are technically solvable problems. In every instance, there are corporations responsible for the creation of these byproducts that need to be held accountable for eliminating them. You know, a substance like 1,4-dioxane is just too hazardous to create and let it escape into the environment. It doesn't break down in the water supply, and it uh, it causes cancer. We, I, I'm with you. We need to eliminate it, which means eliminating the sources and the chemistries that create 1,4-dioxane as, as a byproduct. But again, the biggest industrial polluters in the country of 1,4-dioxane are the PET plastic plants that are supplying plastic bottles and polyester for for clothing. So Shell just built that gigantic factory yeah. in, in in Pennsylvania. Is that, and I, they call it a cracker plant. Yeah. What relation so, does that have to PET plastic? Uh, they're making another plastic there. They're, they're making polyethylene. They take ethane out of the fracked gas and they, quote, crack it to make the ethylene. And then they stick it all together to make polyethylene. Now, it's in some respects, it's a relatively cleaner plastic than um, PET or polyvinyl chloride, PVC, but there are terrible um, particle pollution, greenhouse gases, and other emissions associated with polyethylene production. Also, there are three chemicals that, you know, think if you think about it, we, you know, so modern society, the chemical industry, they probably manufacture well over 30,000 different chemicals, maybe even closer to 50 or 80,000 different chemicals. The three top chemicals for greenhouse gases in production are ethylene, propylene, and ammonia. And ethylene, almost all the ethylene goes to poly, to make polyethylene. So even you know the, the gallon milk jugs that are made of polyethylene or the shampoo bottles made of polyethylene, you know, traditionally it's been thought of as a relatively cleaner plastic. But it is having a, you know, it, it does create terrible impact at the point of production, and it's it's driving the climate crisis. We we have to reduce the production and use of plastics to protect human health, to achieve uh, environmental justice, and to make climate progress. There's no way around it. We can't recycle our way out of the plastics problem. Mike Beliveau, Executive Director of Defend Our Health. You can learn more about the work of Defend Our Health on the organization's website, defendourhealth.org. Before we go today, I wanted to mention that our website, grassrootsinfo.org, has a lot more information about our work, about common environmental exposures and what to do about them, about common chemicals you find in consumer products, plus videos, fact sheets, flyers, science abstracts, sample policies for your town and your school, and so on. You'll find information about bottled water, cleaning products, synthetic turf fields, wireless radiation, dry cleaning, home remodeling, fluoride, diesel exhaust. If it's an environmental health issue, you'll find plenty to sink your teeth into on the website. You can also get in touch with us through the website. So when you get a moment, click over on grassrootsinfo.org and take a look. That's going to do it for this edition of Grassroots. Special thanks to our friend and guest, Mike Beliveau, our engineer, Josh Lyman, associate producer, Toby Ziegler, 
our social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Sam Seaborn. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Grassroots. Thanks for listening.